It was September 25th, 1780, during the American Revolution, and General George Washington was on his way to West Point, uh, which was not then a, a military academy, but the site of America's most important fort. The fort at West Point looked out over the Hudson River, um, and it it was that fort that kept the British from sailing warships and thus artillery inland from New York Harbor. And George Washington was on his way to West Point. Initially, the reason for his trip was to share a meal with an old friend of his, a couple of old friends of his. The commander of the fort was an old friend of his, as was the commander's wife. And he had planned for a long time to go and share a formal meal with that general. Uh, recently, however, he had more reason for wanting to go. He'd been getting reports that the fort was being mismanaged. Supplies were disappearing. The, the cannon batteries that looked out over the river were, were left unmanned at times. There was this long chain that stretched from bank to bank that was a physical barrier to those ships. That had been left in disrepair. So General Washington's new plan was he was going to enjoy the meal and his famous staff, Henry Knox, Alexander Hamilton, the young Frenchman Lafayette, they would personally go across the river from the headquarters to the fort and examine things personally. When they got to the, to the headquarters, though, Washington was surprised to see there was no formal reception. There was no reception at all. It's like no one even knew they were coming, which was weird. Finally, an aide came out of the house and informed General Washington that the fort's commander had gotten a, a, a courier message some hours before and left in a hurry. But he left word, General Washington, for you and your men to be rolled, rowed across the river to the fort and he would meet you there. So they went and got in the boats. They rode across the Hudson. But when they got to those rocky cliffs and hills at the base of the river, they realized immediately no one expected them there either. Soldiers were shocked to be staring at George Washington. And they went scattering up the cliffs to warn people, like the, the head honcho is here. George Washington's confusion began to turn into sort of fear, a sense of foreboding something isn't right. And his suspicions were realized a few hours later when a British courier was captured. Some of his documents were taken off of his person, brought to George Washington. He read them and almost fainted because his good friend, had tried to sell the fort at West Point to the British. And he could not believe such a treacherous thing could be done by his dear old friend, General Benedict Arnold. That is the story of the most famous betrayal in American history. This morning... We're going to read a much shorter story of something that had to feel like betrayal to Paul, the Apostle Paul. 
Now, I don't want to oversell this. What we're going to read is not Benedict Arnold level betrayal, right? Peter is not going to try to sell Christianity into the hands of the British or anything like that. But this couldn't have felt good to Paul because Paul is going to sort of get gut punched by a couple of friends. This is the story of the time Peter and Barnabas sort of sold out to the legalists. We've been studying through the book of Galatians. That's our, uh, our general, uh, our normal way of doing things here. We study through books of the Bible a, a paragraph at a time. Um, where we're at in the book of Galatians, Paul has been, has been sort of charging the people in this region of Galatia, I told you the real gospel. Anyone who adds to the gospel, reject that person no matter the cost. And now he's going to tell the story of the time he even had to confront Peter because of legalism that he had adopted. Let's read our passage for this morning. This is Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And they read this way. But when Cephas, I'll stop there. Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock. Uh, Simon was Jesus' disciple. Jesus gave him the nickname or renamed him Peter. That's the Greek word for rock. So if you say it in Aramaic, it's Cephas. So this is the guy we know as Simon Peter. So when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined Peter in this hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas slash Peter in the presence of everyone, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? There's our story. Let's, uh, let me take a few minutes to explain what we read there and then we'll see if we can determine what we should learn. Verse 11 really is a summary statement of the rest of the paragraph. This is a shortened version of everything else we read. Paul says, I'm going to tell you the story about when Peter came to Antioch. Antioch was a a major city in the Roman Empire. It very well could have had more Christians than any other city in the world at that time. Um, And it was Paul's home base of operations from where Paul launched his various missionary journeys. And there was this time that Peter visited Antioch. So we, in the last couple of uh, sermons, we've learned of of times when, when Paul went to Jerusalem where Peter was. This is the opposite. Peter came to visit Paul's sort of home base. And something happened there that, that made Paul oppose Peter publicly. This, the rest of this is that story. Here was the problem. In verse 12, Paul writes that it was Peter's normal habit to eat with non-Jewish people, to eat with Gentiles. That does not seem like a very big deal to us in, in 2023. 
But in the first century, that was a huge deal. If we know the rest of the New Testament, we shouldn't be surprised that Peter's normal habit was to eat with non-Jewish Christians. Go back very far, and it would have, Peter would, have, would, would not have thought of eating with non-Jewish people. And that has to do with the food laws. In, in the Old Testament, in books like Leviticus, God laid out some very stringent laws about what Jews or what Israelites could and could not eat. Because of those food laws, Jew, people of Israeli descent just couldn't eat with someone who didn't follow those food laws. They were that strict. As a good Jew, as a young man, Peter never violated that. But Peter is the man that God used more than anyone else to communicate that the food laws would have no place in the church. I won't tell you those stories, just take for time's sake, but just take my word for it. Peter is the guy that God used to teach everyone else, Jews and Gentiles alike, that, hey, in the church, for believers in Jesus Christ, we're all justified by faith. You don't have to become religiously Jewish to be a part of this thing. Jews and Gentiles can have table fellowship. Circumcision is not a requirement. Sabbath keeping is not a requirement. God uses Peter to teach that. But for some reason, at least when Peter came to Antioch during this one season of his life, Peter began to behave as if that wasn't true. He stopped eating with Gentiles, which lets us know he picked back up the food laws. Because we are told he was afraid of those who were pro circumcision. Paul's opponents in Galatia and elsewhere were, were Jewish people who believed in Jesus' death and resurrection, but they also believed to be a part of the church, you had to, to pick up all of the Old Testament law. Things like circumcision, food laws, Sabbath keeping, things like that. Something happened in Antioch. And we don't know what it was. Some men came from James who were pro-law, pro-circumcision. That they came from James, lets us know they, they came from Jerusalem. James was not a, a disciple of Jesus originally. It was Jesus' half-brother. We would call him the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. These men come from James. I don't think they're allies of James. I don't think they're bringing a message from James. But they show up and they say something from Jerusalem that makes Peter change. Stop eating with Gentiles. And, we, and, he, and Peter's scared. We're just not told what he was scared of. I would love to know. I'll, I'll share with you my best guess. It's not my guess. The best uh, the best guess that I have read. Here's my best explanation. The original persecutors of Christianity, of Christians, was not the Romans. That would come later. It was Jews. Like Paul in his previous career. He was a Christian hunter. Um, and that, that persecution by Jews against 
Jewish Christians became very violent at times. And, and one idea goes, these, these legalists, these Judaizers come from Jerusalem and say, hey, Peter, your fellow Jewish Christians back home in Jerusalem are being beaten up, imprisoned, and killed. You know why? Because you eat with Gentiles. So why don't you go back to the food laws because it might save someone's life back home. I can't tell you that's what Peter is scared of and that's what makes him change his mind. I'll just tell you I like it as a theory. But that's what Paul sees happening. In verse 13, we're told that the rest of the Jewish Christians in Antioch, which is a lot of folks by this time, they follow Peter. And why wouldn't they? He's Peter. Another gut punch Paul reports is that Barnabas is led astray by this hypocrisy also. Barnabas is a close friend of Paul's. A closer friend than Peter. Barnabas was, was the guy that first stood up for Paul when Paul, he met Jesus, became a Christian, Turned, turned his back on uh, pers the persecution he was leading against Christians. Only a, a lot of the early Christians didn't believe Paul was actually a Christian. Barnabas is the guy that stood up for Paul first. Then Barnabas went with Paul on Paul's first missionary journey. Paul has, or Barnabas has been with Paul while they shared the gospel together with Gentiles. And then guess what they did with them? They ate together. And now Barnabas is acting like that was wrong. In verse 14, Paul says that when he saw that happening, so in other words, there, there's, a, there's a large meal and he sees the Gentile Christians in one place, the Jewish Christians separated in another place, Paul says he, he confronted Paul in front of the whole church potluck dinner. See, potluck is especially funny there because if you're, if you're uh, obeying the food laws, you can't eat potluck with, with... You know what else is true? If you have to explain your jokes, <laughs> they're necessarily not funny. Write that down. If you don't learn anything else this morning. So... Paul confronts Peter. He outs Peter. And like I mentioned, uh, Easter Sunday morning, I believe it was, there's some wisdom here. Sin should be dealt with it, it, like in the extent that it is committed, right? Private sin should be dealt with privately. This is a very public sin and problem. So Paul feels the need to deal with it publicly and he outs Peter. What he does, he stands up in front of the whole dinner May, attention everyone, can I have your attention? I want you to know, Peter and Barnabas are faking it right now. These two guys eat with Gentiles all the time. And they don't follow the food laws. They're being hypocrites. He outs Peter in front of everyone. I don't know what Peter was scared of. Um, I just know Paul is way more scared 
of the results of what might happen if Peter doesn't reverse this. Paul is way more scared of the danger that legalism would do in the church. Legalism, remember, is this false idea that we either establish or we maintain a standing of righteousness by how we behave before God, by following behavioral rules and commands. Paul knows once that gets started, this whole thing will go off the rails, especially if it's Peter. Because everyone will follow Peter. That's, that's the story. That's the whole thing. Paul outs Peter. You live like a Gentile when it comes to food. And you're pretending like you don't. Please do not start believing these people who say Gentiles have to live like Jews in order to become part of the church. That's the story. That little story. I think teaches us four things that I want to spend the rest of our time visiting about. It teaches us about the adherence of legalism, the power behind legalism, the results of legalism, and the cure for legalism. Those four things, we're going to go through them one at a time. First, this passage teaches us that anyone can become legalistic. The adherent to legalism can be any one of us. If if Peter could fall into a legalistic frame of mind, is anyone safe? The answer to that question is no. I, I hope, as we've studied through Galatians and talked a lot about legalism, I hope we are not continually only saying things like, man, I hope so-and-so is listening to this. I wish my, insert your relative here, would listen to this. Do you think you're closer to Jesus than Peter was? Do you think your faith, you're more sure in your faith, you're more rock solid on the gospel than the guy Jesus renamed rock no if peter can get there any of us can get there so the an adherent to legalism can be any one of us second thing this passage teaches us is that the power behind legalism is fear it always is in this passage what was it that made peter cave what was it that made peter start doing what he did not agree with in his heart fear he was scared we don't know what he was scared of specifically but we're told he was scared he was afraid fear is the fuel of legalism it always is legalism this idea that Behavior is what keeps us righteous before God. Once that idea takes hold in different cultures, in different settings, in different churches, there will always be a list of behavioral expectations set. They can look wildly different in wildly different cultures, but they will be there. And then what keeps people in line with those lists is not personal convictions about the lists. It is the 
fear of being seen being outside the list. In, in the tradition this church comes out of, stepping out of line with the list would, would come with being labeled worldly. And boy, that was the worst thing you could be called. That would get you kicked off of the varsity Christian team and relegated to the JV or the C team if you got to stay at all. If someone went to a movie, if someone danced, if someone drank alcohol or went to eat supper at a place where alcohol was served, it can be dress codes, playing certain kinds of games, but the fear was that someone would see me doing one of those things and I would be labeled worldly. Now, in other traditions, there's still lots of legalism. It just looks different. As we mentioned some of these last week, if, if I'm in a tradition where the, the main behavioral line that to be like Jesus is uh, you have to be accepting loving of other people's lifestyle. You cannot be judgmental. You can't have certain standards, right? And if you're not accepting, the fear is I'll be labeled not worldly, but I'll be labeled a bigot. And that becomes the fear. And so I may not agree with certain standards, but I have to act like I do. In, in other more mainline denominations, the, the, the legalism comes down to you need us and what we do here, if, how we behave, the things we do here, if you're going to be okay before God. You need this building, this man, these rituals, or you're not okay with God. And that may not be on the website. That may not be what anyone will tell you in conversation with them. But many of us have learned that is the message when we tried to leave. And very quickly, the fear starts. What will happen to you or your children if you leave here? What will happen to our relationship if you leave here? It doesn't matter what the behavioral standards are. When that is how righteousness is maintained, the power be that keeps people in line is always fear. Fear is always the fuel of legalism and behavior control. Now the results of that, once that is established... The results of legalism are condemnation and hypocrisy. Always one or both of those things. It's pretty easy to see this in this passage because Paul says Peter took a stand that was condemnable. And he calls what Peter was doing hypocrisy. Here's why Peter's stand was condemnable. Paul, it's like Paul was saying, Peter, if you actually believe Christians have to obey the food laws in order to be okay before God, then you are condemned because you don't obey the food laws. 
And now that you're pretending that you do, now it's hypocrisy. Once we begin um, to communicate the idea, whether it is spoken, written out on the website, or just understood, once we begin to communicate the idea that the way we maintain righteousness before God is through behavioral things, once fear becomes the controller of our behavior, condemnation and hypocrisy are, are the only two possible results. There may, I, there may be, according to Romans 8.1, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there will darn sure be condemnation if you disobey the lists. Because that's the way this works. And that's why hypocrisy becomes inevitable. This is why. For decades, countless Bereans and to, to make that and Baptists in a similar tradition. That's why for years, decades, no one, the many, many uh, uh, Bereans and Baptists, there's no way they would have walked into the movie theater downtown, but they had a VCR at home. A pastor that we know very, very well. And love dearly. He, would, he, he likes to go out to eat. Um, he would not go out to eat in the best restaurant in his town because it served alcohol there. And even though he wasn't going to drink any, he knew if someone saw him going in and out of there, he would have problems. Now, he couldn't wait to go out of town and eat in a restaurant that served alcohol. He was afraid of condemnation which made him hypocritical because he appeared to have a standard he didn't he didn't actually have peter in this passage he knew it was good to eat with gentiles but he had to pretend he didn't feel that way you know legalism does not eradicate sin it feels like it will but it doesn't it actually creates more sin. It creates a, a, a breeding ground, a petri dish for sin. Legalism, that behavioral control, pressure, it doesn't eradicate sin. It just pushes it underground. Because in a legalistic culture, people are not trying to eradicate sin. They're not trying to avoid sin. They are only trying to avoid the condemnation that comes when someone sees certain sins. The tragedy is not that I fall into sin. The tragedy is if you see it. And that creates an environment where it's not sin that actually matters. It's what's seen by others that matters. And that is dangerous. How I am viewed, what is seen, becomes important. Now, let me be clear here about what is not legalism and what is not hypocrisy. It is not legalistic to hate sin. Okay? It's not legalistic 
to have standard, to have biblical standards for your own life. It's, that's not, okay? It's actually good. <laughs> it's not, and it's not hypocrisy to have standards and fail at those standards that you have. That's not hypocrisy. It doesn't make you a hypocrite. It makes you a human. Hypocrisy happens when you say you have standards you don't actually have or to say you don't fail where you actually do. And you know what makes that way more likely? When I know if someone finds out about my sin, it will result, I am, I am afraid, it will result in condemnation. Why would I confess sin if I know I'm going, to be, I'm, going to, I'm going to be condemned for it. So I hide. And before long, when that becomes the culture, the shining examples of Christianity within a church aren't people that actually have an impact for Christ. They're people who are the most fervent about those lists. And you can do this in any kind of tradition, in any kind of culture. The people who are seen as the varsity are the ones who love, the seem to love and obey the lists the most. The behavioral righteous, the ones who have a righteousness of their own, that's what the group will be attaining to. Even though we might be ignoring and missing out on things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control toward people who don't look like our lists. Those are the folks who actually have an impact for Christ. So what's the cure when we all fall into stuff like this? We're afraid of what will happen when people see. Right? We have a... We have a this can be in a family, in my friend group, in a marriage, in a church. And the results are, are, are a, an atmosphere of condemnation and hypocrisy. The cure for legalism is the gospel. I want to ask you a question, see if you can answer this. Paul's been fighting against legalism in this whole book, right? His whole life. He gets in that church potluck in Antioch and he sees Peter and Barnabas separate. Can you answer this question? What gives Paul the right to look at Peter's behavior and say, Peter, you are wrong? Does that make Paul legalistic? What gives Paul the right to point at Peter's behavior and tell Peter, Peter's wrong? 
Can you answer that? Let's take a look at what Paul sees, what he says, how he addresses Peter, and see if we can't begin to find a way to talk about sin in a culture of grace. Because grace does not enable sin. Look at verse 14. Paul says, when I saw that they, that's Peter and Barnabas, were, this translation says they were not behaving consistently with the truth of the gospel. That behaving consistently gets translated different ways in different translations. I'm going to say the Greek word that's used there, and some of you will be able to tell what it means. If you have a medical background, you'll know what it means. If you've ever been to New West in Kearney, what Paul says is, when I saw they were not, what I saw was they were not, and he uses this word, orthopod, orthopodeo. It's where we get our word orthopedist, orthopedics. Literally, it means to walk straight. Makes sense if you think about it. If you've ever been to the orthopedist, you probably ain't walking so straight, right? You got something wrong in your back. I've walked in, I've walked in like this, right? Your leg doesn't work. You got a shoulder hanging down. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, I just saw Peter wasn't walking in line with the gospel, with what, I, with what he believes about what saves people. He was out of line with that. That's why Paul confronts him. See, Paul knows. He knows what Peter believes because they've had this meeting before. We've talked about two of them in this book already. They've gotten together. What do you teach about the gospel? What do you teach about the gospel? What do you know? They're exactly the same because they come from the same source. Peter knew what justifies people before God is not behavior. It's faith in Christ alone, right? But Peter's acting like something else saves people. And Peter, because he was afraid... He compromised to save himself from whatever it was he was afraid of. Isn't that true? I just told you the story of every single sin. We can think of every single sin this way. I'm asking something besides Jesus to save me from something. The last time you lied, and you did, there was some sort of discomfort you wanted that lie to save you from. Correct? How many people uh, have an idolatrous view of money and so they ask money to save them from insecurity? If I have enough in the bank, I will feel secure. And, I, have a, and I, I wind up treating money away God says I shouldn't. Or, I'm afraid I won't be accepted, so I ask money to give me things that will help me be accepted by people I want to be accepted by. I'm asking it to save me. How many times has there been a woman who, what she really wants is to be loved and to be cherished? What she's afraid of is being alone, unloved, 
not cherished. And so she asks a man to save her. But he makes it clear he's not going to stick around unless she gives herself to him in a way that God says is sinful. Because they're not married. Is she not asking to be saved from feeling unloved, uncherished, and she's using sin to help save her? By the same token, that man wants to feel manly, masculine, powerful, adequate. He asks sex to save him from feelings of inadequacy, not being enough. We could do this all day. We can line up all of our sins and we will find somehow I am asking something other than the one who does save me. I'm asking something else to save me. That's how we talk about sin in a, in like an economy, in a culture of grace. It's not condemnation. It's, hey buddy, can we talk? You know I love you, which means I want God's best. I want to see that happening in your life. But here's what I see. I, I feel like you're asking something that God says is bad for you, that will hurt you and will hurt others, that is not good. You're asking that to save you from something. Let's try to figure out what it is you're trying to save yourself from, but you can't really be saved from it unless you're walking with the Savior. Because you want to be saved, you want to feel adequate, your adequacy is in Christ. You want to feel secure, your security is in Christ. You want to feel loved, your love is in Christ. You want to feel powerful, your power is in Christ through your weakness, but through Christ, He will save us ultimately from all of those things, but we continue to buy the lie that we can actually be saved walking outside, out of line with the only one our hearts know will save us. That's how we talk about sin in a context of grace. That's what Paul does with Peter. You are, you're out of line with the gospel, with what actually saves. We have learned this morning, any of us can fall into legalism. And we do. When we do, we will use fear to try and control behavior. The result of that will always be a culture of condemnation. And to keep myself away from condemnation, I will use hypocrisy or I'll pretend to be playing along when I'm not, or I'll pretend to have standards that I don't. But legalism does not curb sin. It just drives it underground. The gospel is what gives us the means to talk about sin without condemnation and hypocrisy. You know... If, you ever hear this argument, oh man, I don't go to church because that place is full of hypocrites, right? You know what I always say? I'll, you, I'll give you permission. You can use this. It works. It is, it's disarming. This place is full of hypocrites. I always say, we got room for one more, <laughs> okay? Because listen, 
everyone pretends. But we are signing up to have a culture of hypocrisy if our main message, whether it's on the website or it's just the one we communicate subtly, if our main message is behavioral control, behavioral improvement, this place is going to be filled with hypocrites. And we're going to be them. Our main message is not, man, you should come here. We don't sin all that much, and that's why God likes us. We are signing up for this whole package. Hypocrisy, condemnation, and fear. Our message is, God loves us because of what He did for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only reason He loves us. And we still sin all the time. You know why? Because we continue to buy this lie that there's something else that can save us better than the Savior. We do it every time we sin. And we're trying more and more to walk in line with the Savior, the one who really does save us from all those things we want saved from. Why don't you come and just arm in arm walk with us in that? I would love that. Let's pray. Our Father, you have proved your love for us by what you did for us at the cross. We have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, not by our behavior. God, will you begin to shape us into people of grace by the power of the gospel of grace that the culture in our church, in our families, in our friendships will be gracious, not condemnation and hypocrisy and fear. Not a culture that enables sin or calls what is evil good and good evil, but just one where we really want to walk in line with the Savior who saves us by His grace. That we might reach out to others with the love of Christ with which you loved us. Thanks for loving us. We love you back in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand up and we'll finish our time this morning.